verse 5. And when I start reading this, you're going to figure out why we're going to go all the way to 4 or 5. This is going to be, for some of you, just as joyful as reading a genealogy. And uh, I've got a lot of names to read this morning. But you also know that we believe every portion of the Word of God is inspired and profitable for training and for reproof and for correction. And so we just don't skip anything. And I want you to hang in there. That's not to uh, get you ready to give up. I want you to get ready to get in there and, and really hang, hang with me as we go through this. Uh, there are some good spiritual lessons that we can learn. We all know that if we're going to start a business somewhere, uh, we would first do our homework about the business, about where we're going to have that business. And we would do a study of demographics as long, along the way. We would ask ourselves, is there a need for what I want to provide? Is there a need for the service that we're going, to, can, we're going to produce or the product we're going to produce? And can we meet the demand with the supply? Hopefully there will be a demand if we put the business in the right place and do the right things. Do you have an available labor force for what you're going to do? Is that going to happen? And what is the competition like for the business that you have? Uh, because competition makes a big difference. Well, now, if we think about that, I would like us to switch for a minute, and let's think about uh, the church. Today in America, let's say, because I really don't know much about the church around the world and everything they face, but the church today. Today, the church is also being driven by demographics and culture, trying to fit in and not to offend people by what they say or the topics that they cover. Uh, They are trying to look attractive to the unsaved by championing championing, uh, what they like, and I mean by what the unsaved like. And so we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to say something that's going to make somebody upset. And so the church is backing off of that because we'd rather have more people than less people uh, by just avoiding some of the subjects that are in the Bible. Well, apparently she, the church, has forgotten what her product is in terms of salvation through Christ alone. The Bible says the gospel is offensive to people. Uh, You can do okay with the gospel, talking about the love of Christ and everything, usually right until you get up to the point where you're starting to tell people uh, that they're a sinner and they need a Savior, and if they don't get a Savior, they're going to end up in hell. Uh, That's offensive to people. They don't want to hear that. And so a lot of places they think they're telling the gospel, but they, they never get that out. She has sold out to please an ungodly civilization rather than working at redeeming that civilization. Many have played into the hands of Satan and are pushing a godless agenda from their pulpits. Now, our goal here is not a social goal. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we are pushing and that we want everybody to have. The church has not been, in recent years, transforming America into Christ-likeness. More and more, I pray that prayer about God, would our our people get on their knees and beg you to forgive our nation, forgive our country for turning away from you? And would people repent of their sins and turn back to God? Uh, America is not leading people in Christ-likeness, nor are we fully transforming people into followers of Christ the way God wants us to do. We have abandoned him in the name of relevance with people. And the world has transformed us into its ungodly likeness more than we transform them. The church has abandoned what they once stood for. And Satan licks his chops thinking about uh, the take that he will get. 
Now we here, and I'm talking about our local church, and we're not the only ones. There's lots of churches that are still hanging on and trying to do what is right. We are working hard to not be one of those churches that gives in to society and no longer does what we're supposed to do. We still believe that the doctrine of the Bible is critical to our life and our mission here for Jesus Christ. And we mean everything. I am uh, running into more and more churches that are basically throwing the Old Testament in the trash and just saying it's only worth our time to deal with the New Testament, and that's all we're going to do. Uh, they, they just threw out almost two-thirds of the Bible that is inspired and profitable for training and correction in, in righteousness. Uh, so we will not apologize for teaching out of it, for believing it, for preaching it, and for living it and working to get others to do the same. Uh, we do it despite the fact that the world hates what we are bringing to the table anymore. All right. I would like to uh, begin by reading this text. <clears throat> My first division is verses 1 to 32. So as you can see, that's the entire chapter of verse 3. So uh, uh, I want you to be brave, and I want you to hang in there with me. I'm going to be reading lots of names. Don't worry about that. Some of them I might mess up. <laughs> Forgive me for that, but we'll get it, we'll get it straight. What I'd like you to do is uh, try to go through here and pick out some nuggets of God's truth that you can use in your life and make your life better for Jesus Christ. Pick out some things that are just, just gold for you and say, you know what, if that's what that person did and it was right, wonder if I can incorporate that in my life. And so that's how we're going to read it, okay? Uh, chapter 3, Nehemiah, verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate and constructed it and hung it on its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Now, remember what we did last time? We talked about all the opposition that Nehemiah had uh, to building the wall. Uh, we have Sanballat and Tobiah, and these guys are opposed to what the Jews are doing. How dare they look for the profit or the uh, safety of Israel? And they were furious about it, especially Sanballat and Tobiah. There are others. But this is what's been going on, and now we see that they're going to get with it because the people saw that this was the will of God. Now, I do know this about church people. If they get convinced that something is the will of God, they're on board. They're going to do it. They're going to work hard for it because they know that God is in it. That's what's happening with these people. So we're going to be talking about families and people that live around the ancient wall and everybody's going to just kind of look and adopt a piece of the, of the wall. Some of them, the one that's right in front of their home, they'll take that, and they're going to all rebuild. And that's what's going on here, verse 2. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hashanah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and the son of Mish-Azabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, and the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, Tekoahites made repairs, and their nobles did not support the work of their masters. There's a nugget for you. God's work is going on. The people are really convinced that that's what they're supposed to do. And yet there's opposition right in the families that are about to do the work. And here's one of them. 
uh, their nobles did not support the work. So we should expect that there's going to be times when we're working for the Lord, that there's going to be people in opposition who shouldn't be in opposition, but they are. Verse 6, Joiada, the son of Pashia, and Meshulam, the son of Bezadiah, repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maronithite, the men of Gibeah and Mizpah, also made repairs of the official seat of the governor, the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, uh, the official of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haraumph, made the repairs opposite of the house. And next to, and next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashab-Baniah, made repairs. Malchijah and the son of Hiram, and Hashub, the son of Pathach, Moab, repaired another section of, to the tower of the furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halosheth, the, uh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. So even the girls are getting involved, and they're lending a hand, and they're building the wall. This guy didn't have sons. He only had daughters. Verse 13. I shouldn't have said it. He only had daughters, should I? I should have. This guy was lucky enough to just have daughters. How about that? Now the guys are mad. Okay. Verse 13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate, and they built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakakarem, repaired the refuse gate and built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Hosea, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And the wall of the pool of Shelah and the king's garden, as far as the steps that descended from the city of David, after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, so that's not our Nehemiah, official of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the point opposite the tombs of David, and as far as the artificial pool of the house of the mighty men. Huh, who are they? We're going to find out. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Keilah, carried out the repairs for the district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bavai, uh, the son of Hinnadad, official of the other half of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakog, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin of Hashub carried out repairs in front of their houses, in front of their house, excuse me. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, carried out the repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah 
as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoahites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest carried out repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, carried out repairs in front of his house. After him, Shimeiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room and the corner and the sheet gate, the goldsmiths, the merchants, carried out repairs. You made it. Hallelujah, huh? All right, now, verses 1 to 5 of uh, chapter 4. Now it came about when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it from themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite, this is another enemy of the Jews, was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. And so Nehemiah prays. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. That last part reminds us of what we call the imprecatory psalms, where somebody prays a curse on somebody else. We're going to talk about that and what was going on when they did that. All right, now having done that whole section, um, I'm only going to spend just a little bit of time on verses 1 to 32, and I want to point out some things that are in the text that we sort of saw as we went through there a little bit. In those particular verses, what I'd like us to learn is that people are willing to labor in order to take away the reproach of the city of God. One of the things we learned last week is that Jerusalem is special to the heart of God. Jerusalem is to be the city of righteousness. We also know in the book of Revelation that uh, Babylon will be rebuilt yet in our time, and Babylon is the city of sinfulness and wickedness and unrighteousness. And so these two cities have stood the test of time, one for wickedness and one for righteousness. God wants his people to care about his choice of a city for righteousness. And I'm talking about the city, the walls, the temple. I'm talking about the houses of the people. And I'm talking about the dirt upon which it is built. Very precious to God. Why? Because God chose it. And God said, in all of the earth that I created, I am going to choose this place, one little place, it's not a very big geographical place, where I want my name to dwell. 
and the city of righteousness. And so he picked the area of Jerusalem. Being motivated, the Judeans began to repair the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Now remember, Ezra helped them build the temple. That's up and running. But there's a citadel that needs to be built around the temple and then the wall of the city all around. I remember when Noel and I were there, uh, we'd be walking through these streets. There's buildings on each side. You can't really uh, you know, get, get a fix on where you're at because all these buildings are there. And then somebody would point out and say, you see that section of the wall? It maybe went from the pulpit here to the, the wall. He said, that's part of the old wall of Jerusalem. Now, over here is the new one. Well, you couldn't see where that went either. Uh, and it's confusing. But uh, the walls were built at different times and had to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah is rebuilding it after the Babylonians had torn it to the ground. So this is taking place in spite of the local governors, Sanballat and Tobiah, being opposed to that plan. Uh, we're not far from there, so if you look at uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 10, we're reminded of this. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them. Why are these guys upset that they would build a temple and build a wall? said it's very displeasing to them. And uh, their reasoning was this, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Well, they don't like the sons of Israel. They may just hate the sons of Israel, even though it doesn't use that strong term. There are people throughout history who have hated Christians and hated Christianity. And we never know how far away we are from that in our own country. And the point is, even if there's people opposing you, and even if there's people that, that hate you, we still must carry out the word of God. We still have to do our ministries. We can't give up. We don't want to become slackers in our ministry. We want to do what God has called us to do for the sake of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah has demonstrated that God is behind this plan to build. Remember all the things he went through to, to pray and agonize about it for four months? He needed to ask the king, and the king one day said, what's wrong with you? And that's a problem because uh, it's against the law for the cupbearer to not look happy in the presence of the king. Uh, the king might think, well, there's about a, to be a takeover, or maybe this guy's against me. And Nehemiah was very close to his king. All cupbearers were close to their king. He spent a lot of time together. He tasted everything that the king got by way of liquid to make sure it wasn't poisonous. That's an important person. And finally, the king said, what is this that's wrong with you? You have a sadness of heart. And so Nehemiah said, well, this is the time to tell him what I want. And he did this unbelievable thing saying, I want to go back to my country and build a wall around the city that you rule over. And usually you build a wall, that means that you might be planning to rebel. And... And the king gave him everything he needed to do it. And he's demonstrated that God is in this. Look what he's done so far. Look at how he has put everything in place. And the people saw it. And they said, yeah, I, I think that needs to be done. And they were always more willing to work when they see God is in the plans. Uh, when, when you guys built this church, uh, you had to have believed this is what God wanted you had to believe that uh, this is where God wanted to carry out ministry. And so uh, I've seen pictures after pictures of uh, different people in the early days getting together and, and painting and building things and doing things. And there was a lot, a lot of help because people believed it was God's plan. I want to jump down to uh, verse, uh, verse 3 and 4. 
with any plan. There's always complications. Now get this, Meshulam's daughter happens to be married to Tobiah's son. Meshulam the Jew, his daughter married Tobiah, I'm sorry, married Tobiah's son. And Tobiah is going to be treated very nicely by, the, by one of the higher, higher priests, uh, Eliashib. As a matter of fact, Eliashib one day is going to move Tobiah into the courtroom, or the court area, I should say, of the temple, which means he's going to clear out some of the grain and some of the things that are there to keep the ministry going, and he's going to let Tobiah use it as an apartment building. <laughs> Wait till you see what Nehemiah does when he gets back from the king in Persia when he finds out Tobiah, of all people, has been given a place in the temple. Isn't it interesting? Somebody can be an enemy of, of, the, of the ministry, like Tobiah, and somebody on the inside, a religious person, a man of God, a priest, decides to let this guy have a place. He's an Ammonite. He shouldn't even be in the temple area and gives him a couple apartment rooms in the whole thing. We're going to see what Nehemiah does about that. It's what every man and woman of God should do when they see that which is unholy corrupting that which is holy, be it in our own lives or around us. Well, the nobles of Tekoa decided to not help the project. So another thing that we can learn is not everyone agrees on what the Lord is doing and that they should help. You're never going to get everybody on board. There's going to be naysayers. There's going to be people that kind of drag their feet. Uh, the issue is, uh, is this what God is doing or not? Those people that are against what God is doing, God's going to bring that to their attention on Judgment Day. If you get on board with what God is doing, uh, that'll bring attention to, to God in a good way. Now, years and years ago, we voted to put a, an addition on the back of the church. Um, there were six people voted against it. I was one of them. But I decided, if that's the will of the church, if that's where God is going, then I'm on board. I'm going to help. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to do things with it. That's why me and some other people wired that building back there, and I helped hang drywall. Because if that's where God is going, then I think I was wrong, and I need to get on board. So we did, and we have it. I enjoy it. I'm glad we have that. I think it's useful for the ministry. But not everybody's going to be on board. Not everybody's going to act as nice about it as I did, and some other people did who voted against it. But that's not the case with Tobiah. He's going to act bad, and, and Sanballat's going to act bad. Down in verse 12, it's not just men who helped rebuild. Shalom, a district official, makes repairs with the aid of his daughters. He didn't have any sons. Everybody's out there, and they're all pitching in. The point is that from goldsmiths to the high priest, everyone is contributing to the project except the Tekoites, uh, the nobles. I should say here that everyone may not do the same job or the same amount of work because that's very clear by how, how much some people did and how little others did, just, well, I'll do right in front of my house. Other people build it between gate and another gate. But I want you to see that everybody is important. Everybody's important. You may not work as hard in ministry as somebody else in church, but what you do is important to God, and it's vital to God. We need that. Uh, just think if somebody said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm living right here by this part of the wall. I don't care. Somebody else can fix it. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's a big deal when somebody else is doing a lot more and then you just add it to them. The whole point is everyone's contribution is important to God, and I'm sure God feels that way. 
Notice the building of the wall of the city is important for many reasons, but Nehemiah's reason is that the broken wall is a reproach to them as people and to God. God is the one behind this ministry because his name is tied to the city of righteousness. We're not going to take time, but you can look at that in Nehemiah 2.12. I think we should care about the things that are associated with God's name. The building here is not a holy building. You're holy as a church people. God dwells in you. But since we worship God here and we do ministry here, then this building should be special to us. Uh, We don't worship this building. It's not the church, but it's a place that represents God. So we want it to look nice. We want it to be in good, good condition. We want things to be taken care of. That's why we just spent thousands of dollars on some brand new doors that needed to be replaced because the Lord's house is is a place that's associated with him. We need to keep it up. Now down in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. See, that wasn't bad. We got through that, 32 verses. Here's what we learned there. Prayer is our first defense against those who set themselves up against God's program. Prayer is our first defense against those people who set themselves up against God's program, whether they are believers or unbelievers. There are people opposed to the plan of God here in Nehemiah's day for his people who intend to make, tr- make trouble uh, that their plan is defeated. They're saying, we're going to make trouble for you, and we're against you, and we want to make sure your plan is defeated. They are driven by the dark powers of the enemy. Sanballat, the governor, was absolutely furious about the work on the wall. In some way, he was threatened by this action, And he was not a friend of the Jews. Maybe he saw a financial issue going on here. It also may be true that he knew full well that Artaxerxes said that they had the permission to build this, but he didn't care. See, some people don't care if legally you have a right to do something. That may come into uh, our understanding in days to come. It may not be legal for for him to be opposed to them, but, but he was opposed anyway. So as enemies do, he began to cause trouble and stir up others to do the same thing. He began by mocking the Jews, making fun of them, making fun of their work. You don't know how to build. It's ridiculous. A fox, Tobias said, could jump on this wall and it would fall down. The content of his mocking is detailed in the next verse. In verse 2, chapter 4, he tried to gather supporters and would help them, help him, that would help him bring an end to what the Jews were doing. He goes public and he speaks his anger to his brothers and to wealthy military leaders in Samaria. He's really trying to stir them up. When somebody's mad at somebody, they go around looking for other people that are mad, maybe for a different reason, and then they all get together and attack. People who are after another person will usually try to find others who are upset and be after that person too. And that's what they're after. Nehemiah has a target on his back. If someone is willing to pick up a rock and throw it, other people who are mad usually join in. But they may have a a different reason for their anger uh, than does the organizer of the coup. This is a weak spot in the coalition, but it's still a coalition of evil. I'm just saying that God's ministry sometimes has opposition to it, and you may uh, be be the brunt of that. Hang in there. Don't give up. God is with you. Look at the reasons he gives for being against the building of the walls of Jerusalem. 
He says things like, uh, do these people think they can offer sacrifices? They can barely feed themselves. They can barely get what they need to do the building. How are they going to afford sacrifices to dedicate the wall? He refers to what the Jews are going to do at the celebration when they get the wall built. He says it's never going to happen. Please don't forget that all opposition to the, uh, to the uh, completing of our ministry for God is demonically inspired and demonically driven. Remember, Paul taught us in Ephesians 6, 12, we don't fight flesh and blood, we fight principalities and powers and forces of this dark world. Remember that God can easily handle the greatest human or the greatest spiritual adversaries that come against the ministry. In verse 3, Sanballat succeeds in gaining some support. There he is, Tobiah the Ammonite responds with some mocking of his own. Somebody's throwing rocks, he'll get in there and mock away too. He predicts that a fox could jump on that wall the Jews are making, and it will topple down because it's so flimsy, a fox could knock it over. It's going to be fun when we get to the end of the book and we find out at the dedication of the ceremony, pretty much everybody in Jerusalem is going to be walking down those walls down to, up to the temple, and sure enough, they don't fall down. What would you do if you, if you and your work were being made fun of? And we're talking about in this context uh, the things you're doing for Jesus Christ, the things you want to do for the Master. What would you do? I want to remind you of a couple places. Uh, my time is running away from me here. Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> I suppose it would help if I told you where I was, huh? Ecclesiastes 6.11. It says, For there are many words which increase utility. What then is the advantage to a man? I like to translate this verse this way. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that help anyone? I remember a guy gave me advice one time when I had people talking about me uh, way, way out in a different place, not, not here. Not that people don't talk about me here, but uh, it was some other place. And I was getting upset about it. So I called a, a professor I had in college, and I said, uh, I said, Tim, what would you do about this? And he said, what are they doing? I said, well, they're talking. They're bad-mouthing me. They're doing, saying stuff. And, you know, some of it's kind of half true, and some of it's not true at all. He said, what would you do about that? He said, great, what I would do, my advice to you biblically is let them talk. That's not what I wanted to hear. What do you mean, let them talk? Shouldn't I defend myself? Shouldn't I get in there and get amongst them? He said, no, let them talk. And I said, why? He said, because of Ecclesiastes 6.11. The more they talk, the less meaning it will be, and how's that going to do anything for them? Well, that's a good point, because it's biblical. Let them talk. I just gave that advice to a lady in Omaha, Nebraska. If they're talking about you and bad-mouthing you, let them talk. And you know what? She did. And it worked, just like the Bible said it would. Let them talk. People are going to want to, they're going to know what it's going to be after a while. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. And the other one I have for us is uh, Psalm 3120. And, and by the way, I'm bringing that up because I want you to recognize Nehemiah didn't go confront them. Nehemiah didn't go and uh, tell them to, you know, uh, keep their opposition to themselves. See, now I forgot where I was going. All right, 3120. Now, he's talking about what God does uh, for his people. He says, you hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. 
you know where you shelter when times are hard and you're getting beat up and people are going against you in your ministry? In the arms of Jesus. That's not a surprise, is it? He'll care for you. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of your heart. Uh, from the conspiracies of men, you keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Keep them sheltered from the strife of tongues. What's going on here is Sanballat and Tobiah are flapping their jaws all over the place trying to cause trouble. I think it's interesting, one of my professors pointed out, you can always tell who's winning in the Middle East because you don't hear anything from Israel. But you're always hearing about the, uh, the Palestinians flapping their jaws. You know why? Because they're losing. That's why. And that's what's going to happen here with Sanballat and Tobiah. Well, Nehemiah handles it by getting to work. Just do the job. Get after it. Nehemiah prays an imprecatory prayer against the enemies of God. Even in the Old Testament, I want to make sure we understand, it teaches that we are not to take our own revenge. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 19 says, never take your own revenge, leave room for the wrath of God. Uh, Deuteronomy, I'm not going to take time to read it because I'm running out of time. Deuteronomy 32:35, it's in your bulletin, by the way, if you're seeing that, uh, says uh, God is the one who takes revenge, not you. See, that's the way it was in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So why is it that our, our hero here is praying here in verse 4, Here, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Now, uh, people that like to pretend they're holier than everybody else would say, well, you could never pray something like that for, for somebody who's an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'd say, yes, I can. See, he's asking God to do it. He didn't get a band of men and, and go after Tobiah and go after Sanballat and, and, and deal with them. He said, God, you do that. That way, if that's what's supposed to happen and God does it, so be it. If God doesn't want it to happen, it won't happen. And we will just say that's his will. That's great uh, if that's what God decides. An imprecatory psalm, which is where we mostly see this, is a curse directed at other people. People have real problems with these types of prayers today. I don't know that we should. Let me just say at the outset today, we don't have any experience with people coming up with... Uh, uh, their war machine and trying to knock down Smith Center and kill everybody in it. We might feel differently about our enemies if we would uh, look at them that way, like they did in this day. What makes you think the enemy isn't knocking at our town, trying to break down doors and tear, tear families apart? Shouldn't we uh, do something about that? Nehemiah is simply calling for the curses that God uttered himself against the enemies of his people. And all Nehemiah is doing is say, Lord, we have opposition here. We're trying to do a work for you. Would you please take care of them like you said you would, an enemy of the ministry? That's all he's doing. If Sanballat and Tobiah and others do repent and turn to Yahweh, uh, well, that's up to God. And what they will face in the next life is uh, you know, going to be their forgiveness, but they lose reward if they don't trust uh, God for their salvation. Uh, it'll be com completely worse than that. Certainly we can petition God to defeat his enemies and protect us. But as in the imprecatory prayers, uh, we leave what happens to the enemy 
up to God. It is not up to us, so we remember that. In light of all this, we have what the Old Testament calls, to, calls on to care for our neighbors and to bear each other's burdens, just like in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, and Galatians 6, 2, that says, bear one another's burdens. Yet God also tells us uh, to turn a, a disobedient Christian over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme in 1 Timothy 1, 20. God is tough on sin. God doesn't appreciate people beating up his ministers and beating up those that are working for God. God does not appreciate uh, if a parent comes and rips you to shreds because they didn't like the way you handled the verse in Awana. Uh, God isn't happy with that. Well, let, let God deal with that. Uh, maybe somebody in the Sunday school class doesn't agree with what you had to say or how you taught. All right, well, you try to work it out if you can, but you leave it up to God. Our enemies will not make our ministry, I'm sorry, our enemies will not like our ministry ever. Do you expect those who don't follow God to like what we do? That's ridiculous. They don't. But we need to refrain from bowing to their desires, their likes, their dislikes, and, and complete the task that Jesus gave us to do in the way he told us to do it. You can't share the gospel if you don't tell the person they're a sinner. You can't share the good news of Jesus Christ if they don't know there's a penalty for what they're doing by denying him. Now, they tend to focus on that, but we're focusing on the fact that you have a way out. It's free. God did it for you. All he wants you to do is trust him for it. You know, we can pray for protection and at the same time love our enemies. Flesh and blood are not our problem. The evil spirits behind them are. The issue is that we must stay the course. Don't give up. Don't get too comfortable. In America, it's easy to get comfortable. It may cost us personally, too, when we're called to do what Jesus wants us to do. One of the hardest things for Americans is just to be able to lay aside our own desires and our own plans that we have about what we want to do and go help at the church if there's a need. My need usually comes before their need, apparently, but uh, that's not the way the Bible teaches it. Sometimes we may uh, just have to have a personal cost there when we're called on to do something, to lay aside a personal commitment and take care of the work that God wants done. God will not take lightly those who demoralize his ministers and their ministries. You know I'm not talking about just me, right? You know you're a minister. You know I'm talking about all of us. All of us have ministries. We're all ministers for Jesus Christ. We're all going to get opposition. Stay the course. Don't give up. God is on your side. All right, let me give you these uh, applications. The children will be out soon. So, Number one, vengeance must always belong to God and not us personally. The Old Testament teaches that. Friends, the New Testament teaches that. Secondly, do we have a heart, that long, a heart longing for God to be vindicated in worship? Do we care? about what people think about God. We should. Hope we do. Thirdly, God will hold everyone accountable who mocks and tries to stop his work and his ministries. And if they get the job done and they stop us, God knows. Maybe there's another direction he wants us to go. Who knows? But they will give an account for what they did one day. Leave that to God. Let God handle that. And finally, every contribution to God's work has significance and meaning. Every contribution 
that you make, I'm not talking about financial necessarily, I'm talking about when you do a, a little something here or there. It doesn't have to be huge to count for God, but huge things count as well. I hope what we've learned here is that there's going to be opposition to ministry. God will be with us and God will care about us. And what we need to do is not focus on the enemies against Christ, but we need to focus on the ministry, the work, the job that God gave us to do. I hope we can do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we understand uh, that we have brothers and sisters around the world uh, that are being persecuted, tortured, and losing their lives because they love you. Uh, we are not foolish enough to think that that can't come to our own country. And Father, I just pray that you would help us, that we would work at ministry, no matter what the opposition might be, and work in those places that you've called us to, to build a wall, to tear one down, to uh, open the Bible with somebody, uh, to know what we have to do at the right time in your ministry. Thank you for giving us ministry, for giving us work to do that counts for eternity, that is valuable for people's souls. We ask that you would receive thanks. Help us and watch over us as we see uh, the enemy growing stronger. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'll please stand and open your hymnals to 498, we will close by singing Peace Like a River. bow for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray for, uh, for courage, uh, for boldness as we minister and not let the uh, tricks of uh, Satan and his uh, cohorts uh, derail us from our ministry. I just thank you, Father, for your word and ask your blessing on each and every one that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.